Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is Earth's Final Deception. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank You that You have brought us back to yet another night of Jesus on Prophecy where we have been learning truth. We have been seeing the deceptions that are going on in the world and the error and the pagan practices that have crept into the church. And we have seen how You are calling us out of that corruption and out of the apostate church and you are desiring that we would give all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our body and all of our strength to you. And Lord, we just pray that you would continue the work that you've begun in us. Give us the strength, give us the power, the ability, the desire to do your will. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation describes two systems of religion. And we have been talking about this over the course of our series on Jesus on Prophecy. It describes two ways of worship. And we've seen the distinction, the contrast between true and false worship. And tonight we're going to look at yet another aspect of this from a a little bit different angle. Tonight we are going to look at two women who are described in the book of Revelation. And as we have already talked about, a woman in Bible prophecy represents a church or God's people. And I've been telling you that, but I've never really shown you that from the Word of God. So let's start tonight by looking at that. Take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 6. That's going to be page 873. 873, Jeremiah chapter 6. I want to show you where we get this symbol of a woman representing a church or representing God's people. Jeremiah chapter 6, page 873. And let's look at verse 2. The Bible says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. And so here we see God's people being referred to as the daughter of Zion. And there are other places in the Old Testament that refers to the, the nation of Israel as the daughter of Zion. And you can see where the Bible talks about Mount Zion, which is in the New Jerusalem. And so these are representing God's people. But notice that it says that I have likened my people to a lovely and delicate woman. And so here we get the symbology that God's people are symbolically being represented in the Bible by a woman. Now, someone might say, yeah, pastor, but that's the Old Testament. That's talking about Israel. That's not talking about the church. Well, okay, so let's go to the New Testament then. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that's going to be page 1334. And I want you to notice here what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth 
what he's saying to us. Page 1334, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look with me at verse 2. Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as what? As a chaste virgin to Christ. So here we see that God's people are not only likened to a woman, but here we see it's a very specific type of woman, right? This is a chaste woman. This is a pure woman. This is a woman that is a virgin, one who has never been defiled. And so this is God's people being referred to as a pure church or a pure woman. And so that's where we get that. And then there's another one too. I'm not going to take you there, but you can go to Ephesians chapter 5 and you can read that for yourself where Jesus is likened to a faithful husband and the church is likened to his bride. And so once again, we see the Bible is consistent that a woman represents the church. And so we have these two women that are represented in the book of Revelation. And the first one is in chapter 12. And she is symbolized as this uh, faithful bride of Christ. And she is wearing this white dress. She is faithful to her lover, Jesus Christ. She is undefiled. She has not been corrupted by false doctrine. And she's described as Christ's bride, His church here on earth. And it's very interesting that she is described as this woman in white. And you'll remember that last night we were talking about that first period of church history being represented by a white horse, which represents purity, right? And we know that she is a part of this first century church because of the white, because of the purity. That's when the church was the purest it's ever going to be, or that it ever has been in the history of the church. When Christ died, went to heaven, and the apostles went out and were preaching the truth, filled with the Holy Spirit, they reached the whole world, then known world, in a very short period of time. And it was a very pure church. And we know that this is the beginning of church history because we also are going to see in a moment some things that point us to that. But then you get to Revelation chapter 17... And you see another woman that arises. And this woman is riding on a scarlet-colored beast. And the Bible calls this woman a harlot. And so if the pure church, the true church, is represented by the woman in white, is represented by a virgin, a pure woman, and this woman's a harlot, then this is representing an apostate church. This is representing a church that has committed adultery against her lover. And so she is uh, symbolized as a harlot, and so she's representing this apostate system that we're going to talk about. 
Tonight we're going to look at both of these women, the one in Revelation 12 and the one in Revelation 17. We'll just look a little bit at the one in 12, but then we're going to spend most of our time in Revelation 17. And I hope that as we study through this subject, that we are going to see that it is critical, that it is crucial that we adopt this theme that we have had for our series, and that is that if it's in the Bible, if it's truth, then I'm going to put my faith and trust in it. But if it's not in the Bible, or if it disagrees with the Bible, then it's not for me. Even if the whole world wanders after the beast, even if the whole world goes after the teaching of men and pagan practices and tradition being put over the Bible, I'm still going to put my trust in the Word of God. Before we look at the apostate church, though, I want to take a look at the true church in Revelation chapter 12, because this New Testament church is radiant with the Son of Righteousness, with Jesus Christ, and Christ is predominant in the life of the true church. Her affections are fixed upon Him. Her heart belongs to Him. She has seen the truth. She has fallen in love with the truth. And if she falls in love with the truth, she's falling in love with Him. And she gives her love and her devotion and her affection to Christ. The New Testament church is symbolized here in Revelation chapter 12. So let's go there and let's look at this woman. Revelation 12 that's representing this faithful bride of Christ. That's going to be page 1416. Revelation chapter 12. And this is a church in the very beginning of the church history. And we're going to see that from a few clues here. Look with me in Revelation 12 and look at verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And we're going to get two very good clues here to show us that this is, in fact, the pure church, the first century church. And we're going to see that from two things. Number one, we see that she has a garland of 12 stars on her head, and those 12 stars represent the 12 apostles. And so this is a first century church. We also get it even more clearly from verse 2 where it says that she is with child. And if you go down to verse 3 and 4, you see who this male child is. He's the one who's going to rule the world with a rod of iron, and he is the one who is going to be caught up into heaven. And we've already talked about this. We know that this is talking about Jesus Christ. And so this is the first century church in its purest state. And we're going to find out why it's in its pure state then, because something happens. And that's what happens when we get to Revelation chapter 17. So let's go there. And let's look at Revelation chapter 17. We have this other woman that comes on the scene in contrast with the woman in Revelation chapter 12. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot 
who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so here we have this harlot woman who has left her lover. She has left her true love. So here is a picture not of the true church, but of the fallen church, one that has fallen away from the truth, one that has apostatized from the truth. She has walked away from her true lover. She has walked away from the truth of God's Word. And I want you to notice there in verse 1 that it said she sits on many waters. Did you catch that? And so this is a church that sits on many waters. And you'll remember that we already talked about this in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. It tells us what the symbol means. It says the waters which you saw represents a great multitude of people from all over the world, right? So we have this church here that is a harlot church an apostate church that has walked away from the truth, but she is over a great multitude of people all over the world, every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And so this is a worldwide church. This is not some little church over on the country road down there where they're off by themselves. This is a worldwide church. This is a universal church. And she is over a multitude of people. And then it even goes on to say, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. We saw that in verse 2, right? And so she is now also committing fornication with the leaders of the world. And so the question there is, what is fornication? And the simple answer is that it is an illicit union. It is something that God has not sanctioned, that God has not allowed. God is her lover, but she has walked away from God. She has walked away from the truth, and she has made a union with another lover. And so this is an illicit union. This is one that is not authorized by God. And so you have this fallen church system that has unified itself with the state or with the government or king or kingdom or power. And so in the true church, the church is united with Jesus Christ and it gets its power from Him. But if you have a church that walks away from God, walks away from the truth, now it's got to go and get its power from somewhere else. Amen? And now it's getting its power from the state. This fallen church looks to the kings and the political leaders of the earth for power. And that's what happens when you are no longer following the truth of God's Word. The power of God is not there. And so they have to go and get the power from the state authorities and from the kings of the earth. And I want you to notice, look with me again back at verse 2. Revelation 17, verse 2, it says, And the inhabitants of the earth 
are drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, we already talked about this. This was part of our question and answer time. And I really appreciate you guys asking these questions because it's just making my job easier. We've already talked about what wine represents. Wine in Bible prophecy is symbolic of doctrine. And so you have true doctrine... And you have false doctrine, but we have this harlot who has apostatized, who has walked away from the truth, and so her doctrine is false, is filled with error, is filled with tradition that's placed above the Bible, is got pagan practices that have come in with it, and she is sharing that with the world. And so she is passing around this cup of false doctrine and the world becomes intoxicated with this error. And that's a very interesting thought because she's giving them this wine, but it's not alcoholic wine. It's false doctrine and they're actually getting drunk on it. It is causing confusion in their minds even though they may not even realize it. And so there are millions of people, billions that are drunk with the wine of Babylon and they are deceived and the Bible describes it that way. Revelation 17 verse 3 says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, this is the harlot woman of Revelation 17 representing this false religious system. This is in opposition to the truth. And so we need to remember a couple of things here. First of all, she's sitting on a beast. And you'll remember that in Bible prophecy, a beast represents a king, a kingdom, a nation, a power, whether it be political or religious, doesn't matter, but it's this beast is representing this kingdom or this power. And so this woman is this corrupt church sitting on top of, riding on top of the civil government, riding on top of the state. We've talked about this already too. If you have a woman sitting on top of a beast, who's in charge? It's the one who's sitting on top, right? And so she is controlling the state. She is controlling the powers of the kings of the earth and dictating to them what they should do and then having them enforce her doctrines and her beliefs. And so this is an illicit union. This is one of church and state. And this is one that God has not authorized. Now I want to show you a quote from a Bible commentary on page 593 from A.R. Fawcett and David Brown. And I think this is just incredible what they say. They say the state and church are precious gifts of God. I would agree with that. Precious gifts of God. This nation was built on a separation of those two and they are gifts of God. But the state being desecrated becomes beast-like. And the church apostatizing becomes the harlot. 
And so they are describing exactly what the symbology is representing here in prophecy. And history has shown that that's exactly what happened. But Revelation 17.4 goes on and it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. I want you to pay close attention there to what this woman is wearing. And notice those colors, purple and scarlet, and notice that she's decked out with all of this uh, ornamentation and all of these precious stones and jewelry, right? Now, do you know of any religious system in the world today that dresses that way? And of course we do, and we've already identified this beast we already know that this is talking about this uh, corrupt apostate system, right? And so it goes on to say that she has in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. In other words, she has in her hand this cup full of this false doctrine, full of this error, full of the traditions that have been considered more important than the Word of God, this pagan doctrine and practice that has come into the church, and she is causing the world to drink of the error that she is passing along. And so we see that this is exactly what we see in that system today, don't we? This is not pure doctrine, but this is corrupt doctrine that she is passing along. And so she's got this golden cup full of wine that represents this intoxication, this false doctrine that she is giving to people, and they are drinking it, and it's causing a great amount of confusion in the Christian church today. Now, I also want to point out to you what she has on her heads. If you look in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, and I also have it here on the screen, it says, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, I want to skip over that mystery, Babylon the Great, for a moment. And let's focus in on that mother of harlots. First of all, I want you to notice that this corrupt religious system is called the mother. And she apparently has given birth to some harlot daughters. We see in church history that that is exactly what has happened. You have this mother church that apostatized, that fell away from the truth. And during that 1260 years of reign of terror, that truth was cast to the ground and error prospered. But then came along the end of the prophecy where she would no longer have political power. That ended in 1798. We saw that. And then God began to restore the truth. And you have the reformers like Huss and Jerome, Zwingli, Luther, and they come along and they're recognizing the error in the church and they're fighting against this system. They're trying to fix 
the problems in the church. None of them wanted to leave their church. They loved their church. They wanted to fix it. But as they're studying the Word of God, they're realizing that the very church that they're fighting against is none other than Antichrist. And so now they come out of that mother church But unknowingly, unwittingly, they are bringing some error with them. Yes, they left some of the error behind. Yes, there was some very noticeable ones, and they were making corrections, but there was some that were so deep-seated that they didn't even recognize them as error. That that little bit of error had mixed with truth thousands of years earlier, and by now, by the time of the Reformation, it's so common practice that they don't even realize that it's wrong and they take that with them and you have these protestant churches that are rising up that are taking some of that error with them and so you have a harlot mother who also has harlot daughters who are the abominations of the earth and what we see happening today is that god is calling his people out of that corrupt system. He's calling us back to the truth of His Word. And that's why we're here, right? Because we want the truth. And we have this sense that there's truth and that you can understand it. And we are discovering that truth in this series. And I hope that you weren't expecting to just come here and I was going to give you some sweet-sounding words, right? That were going to make you feel good. But no, we are pulling the truth out of God's Word. And I believe that each one of our hearts is longing for that truth. And we're finding it directly from the Word of God. And so we love the truth. We want the truth. We need the truth. Amen? And so that's why we're here. But I wonder, why is this woman called Mystery Babylon the Great? If we're going to understand that, we need to realize that by the time Jesus Christ comes on the scene and pays the penalty for our sin, is resurrected, goes back to heaven, and we have the first century church, by this time, the Babylon of old, ancient Babylon in the Old Testament, has already been destroyed, and the Bible says that Babylon would never be rebuilt. And you can go back and you can study that out for yourself. But that literal place called Babylon in the Old Testament is done, it's gone. And so this is not talking about literal Babylon. Remember we talked about this before, that the book of Revelation, nearly all of it is either a direct or a partial quote from other places in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And so we see that those things that were real and literal in the Old Testament are now symbolic or spiritual in the New Testament. And those real, literal places and people and things were pointing forward to a greater reality. And so we're not talking about literal Babylon here. This is talking about spiritual Babylon. It's talking about a religious system that would depart from the truth, depart from the teaching of God's Word. This church would leave Christ and chase after 
pagan doctrine and bring error in. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a system that is corrupt, a system that has departed from Bible religion, that has departed from faith of the Scriptures. And so false doctrine would come into the church through this false religious system called Babylon. And this system is made up of the mother and the harlot daughters. And the whole part of that is called Babylon. Now, I want you to notice that this was not sanctioned by God, right? But it was sanctioned by men. I want you to notice in John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Right? And if we wander away from the truth and we allow error and false doctrine to start coming in, we're going to have a mess. Think about this. We've talked about this before. The Bible is inspired by God. 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, and yet it is an integrated message system from outside of our time domain. And it all has to fit perfectly together like pieces of a puzzle. So if you misinterpret or you twist the Word of God over here, it could affect what you believe or think over here. Right? Because it all has to fit perfectly together or it's not the truth. And we talked about how we've got to take all of those verses and line them up and get the weight of evidence and then look at those verses that seem to be saying something else and try and rethink those. But if you don't do that, then you've got error that comes in and you've got this system called Babylon and you're no longer sanctified by the truth, but now you're following the teachings of men, the doctrines of men, rather than the doctrines of God. And so to be sanctified means to be set apart for a holy purpose. And if we're not following that holy purpose, then it's not sanctified. And so God says that He is calling His people out of this false doctrine of Babylon and back to the truth of His Word. And if we're going to truly understand spiritual Babylon, then we are going to have to go back and we are going to have to look at literal Babylon and see if it's pointing to some realities that we see happening in this false system, this religious system called Babylon. Well, you'll remember that in the Old Testament, right after the flood, that there was a man by the name of Nimrod who took a group of people and they moved into the plains of Shinar and they began to build a great big tower called the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel. And you can go back to the book of Genesis and you can read about that. But what happened was God had said that He would not bring about another global flood. And He gave the rainbow as His sign 
of His Word that He would never do that again. But then these people in rebellion, they began to build this tower to make a name for themselves, to build up this tower all the way to the heavens so that if God ever did flood the world again, they could just climb up to the top of the tower and they'd be okay. And so God sees what they're doing and He comes down and He confuses their languages. They were all talking the exact same language, and now He brings different languages among groups of people, and now they're trying to work, and the guy up on the top is yelling down for some mortar, and they're sending up brick and boards and everything else, everything but what He needed. And so they couldn't work together, and so the work stopped, and the people scattered throughout the face of the earth. And by the way, that's what God had told them to do in the first place. He had said, go and fill the face of the earth, but they were all congregating in this one area and trying to make a name for themselves. Now, I want you to notice what it says in Genesis 11, verse 9. It says, therefore, its name is called Babel or Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And so if you have a confusion of languages, if someone is speaking to you in a language that you don't understand, it's like babbling to you, right? And that's where we get the name Babylon. And so Babylon is this mixing of truth and error, just like God mixed up the languages, and now there's confusion. And that's what this apostate religious system does. It brings confusion. It brings error mixed with truth. Think about this for a minute. I want you to imagine that I would take one of these bottles of water on the table and I would ask you, you want some water? And it's pure water. It's good water. And you say, yeah, I'll have some of that. And so I say, okay, hold on a minute. And I take an eyedropper and I put just one drop of cyanide in there. Now, we might look at that and we might say, well, it still looks like pure water, right? But it's got poison in it. It's going to kill you. And that's the same thing that happens when you put error in with truth. You don't have some truth and some error. When you put error in with truth, it's error. Right? And and that's what you have in this corrupt religious system. And it's babbling. It's confusion. It's taking the Word of God and twisting it and making it something that it's not. And so we have this confusion that's going on and that's why this religious system is called Mystery Babylon the Great. But when a church clearly teaches the truth of God's Word, that's not babbling. That's called proclaiming. And so there's a difference between proclaiming the truth and babbling tradition. Now I want to show you something here. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. That's going to be page 1025. And I want you to notice something that the king of Babylon says. Daniel chapter 4, page 1025. I want you to notice what King Nebuchadnezzar says here in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. The Bible says, The king spoke, saying, 
Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You see what's going on here? The king in his pride and in his arrogance is saying, look what I did. It's all about self. He's not recognizing that God had anything to do with it. He's taking all of the credit upon himself. And that's what Babylon does. We learn that from literal Babylon, but we take that forward into spiritual Babylon and we see that's why it's called Babylon. It's this system, a man-made system, where man is taking control and saying, you know, this is what we're going to do rather than following the truth of God's Word. And so spiritual Babylon represents a man-made system of religion that is established by man based on man's teachings, established on man's ideas rather than on the Word of God. You know, Jesus, while He was on this earth, He spoke about this prophecy about His church, knowing that this was going to happen. He saw this coming. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, He said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, let's be honest. When we look at what's happening in the church today, and we see all of this error, all of this deception, all of these pagan practices that have come into the church, we would look at that and we would say, man, it sure looks like the devil's winning, doesn't it? But Jesus says, they will not prevail. I'm going to win. I'm going to set it straight. I'm going to fix it. Right? And He is calling His people out of this corrupt system. And so we have two systems of religion. One that is man-made and one that is God-made. And the God-made church has a solid foundation of Jesus Christ. It is built on true doctrine. It's built on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But Babylon is a man-made system of religion. It is based on false doctrine built upon the words of men and the traditions of men rather than on the commandments of God. And Jesus is calling us from all human systems of religion. He's calling us out of error. He's calling us out of false doctrine. He's calling us out of pagan practices to come and worship Him in the manner in which He has asked us to do so. He is calling us back to the Bible. He's calling us back to loyalty to Him. Worshiping Him as the Creator. Uh, back to a faithfulness to His Word. Jesus Christ is calling us out of this man-made institution back to the church that He Himself built. In fact, in Colossians 1, verse 18, it says, "...and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence." So, in the true church, Jesus Christ is number one. In the true church, Jesus Christ has preeminence. In the true church, Christ is the only head. He is the head of His church. In fact, somebody put it this way once, 
they said the true church of God is the only organization so big that its body is on earth, but its head is in heaven. But when you look at Mystery Babylon the Great, where is her head? There is a body that calls itself the head of the church, right? And this woman, this church, is sitting on this scarlet-colored beast. But let's go back and look at earthly Babylon some more. Remember, we can learn from the earthly because it's pointing forward to some greater realities. And so let's go back and let's look at the earthly Babylon. Earthly Babylon in the Old Testament had an earthly head that was preeminent. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold. He was the head of Babylon. And when the king said something, you better do it or you're going to lose your life. Amen? He's the one who called the shots. And when he said something, it was as if it were the voice of God Himself. And he sat in his temple on his royal throne and he spoke as if he were God. And once again, in the last days, you're going to have a church-state system that is arising now called spiritual Babylon that would have a spiritual leader claiming to be God on earth, claiming to speak as God, claiming to have the authority and the prerogatives of God and to be able to forgive sins. And His Word would be declared to be the very Word of God. That's what He claims. And so spiritual Babylon has a leader who claims to be God, claims to have the authority of God, the power of God, speaking from the throne of God as if He were God Himself. And this first identifying feature of spiritual Babylon is that it has an earthly head who speaks for God in the place of God where the true church has only one head and that's Christ in heaven. But there's a second thing about Babylon that we can learn and bring forward to this Babylonian system of false religion. And that is that Babylon was the center of image worship all throughout the Old Testament. You can never truly understand the impact of Revelation chapter 17 and the words mystery, Babylon the Great, unless we truly understand the Old Testament Babylon. Babylon in the Old Testament was the center of image worship. And now we have the true church Christ saying, come directly to Me. But in this corrupt apostate system, it's telling us, no, you don't go directly to Christ. You go to the priest. You go and you bow down to these images. You pray to the saints. You ask Mary to intercede for you. That's what image worship does, right? And so... We see the contrast there between the true and the false. And Babylon in in the Old Testament was the center of image worship. So in spiritual Babylon, we should expect this corrupt religious system to also be very heavily into image worship, right? 
And that's what we see. I want to show you something here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. That is the second commandment. And you have all of these images being brought into the church, and now they're bowing down to these images, and rather than fixing that, rather than saying, oh, we made a mistake, and correcting it, instead, they take the second commandment out, they move all the others up, they divide the tenth into nine and ten, and we continue on with our image worship. And you still have that going on today. That verse goes on to say, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I the Lord and your God, and I'm a jealous God. God doesn't want us to be bowing down to any images. Have you ever wondered why there was never anybody in the days of Jesus who drew a picture of Him? Why don't we have an exact image of Jesus? I think there's a very good reason for that. Because Jesus didn't want us bowing down to His picture. He wanted us worshiping Him as the one true God. But you have all of this image worship going on in the church today. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be a part of that. I want you to come out of that. And you go into Babylon and they use images prolifically in their worship services. And many of those images are found that came from paganism and were brought into the church. And we talked about how there was a statue that used to represent Jupiter, but now it represents St. Peter and others like that. That's exactly what happened. And now those images are called sacred today, right? And those are images that the church fathers and leaders approved and called holy even. And so we have this image worship. The Bible says that there's only one mediator between man and God, and that is the person Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name under heaven. And yet you have millions of Christians today who revere those so-called images and objects of worship. And this is one of Satan's major deceptions that he uses to cloud the minds of people so that they don't see the truth of God's Word. And then you have a third characteristic of literal Babylon that we can also bring forward into spiritual Babylon. And that is that Babylon in the Old Testament was the center of false teachings about death. It was the center of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And that pagan practice worked its way into the church and it got to the place today where people believe that when you die, you don't really die, but the soul lives on without the body and you either go directly to heaven or directly to hell. Now I want to show you something from the Old Testament that's very powerful. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. If you're still in Daniel, just go one book to the left. Ezekiel chapter 8, that's going to be page 960. And I want to read to you something that God is showing Ezekiel, and we need to see this for ourselves. Look with me in Ezekiel chapter 8, page 960, and look with me at verse 1. 
The Bible says, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist downward, fire, and from his waist upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in vision of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was which provokes to jealousy. So here Ezekiel is saying that they've got this image set up in the courtyard of the temple, and it's an image that God is getting jealous over. He goes on to say, verse 4, "...and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision I saw in the plain." That was a previous vision he had. Verse 5, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. And so I lifted my eyes towards the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see even greater abominations. And so he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. And so I went in and saw... And there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all of the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jehazaniah, the son of Shaphan, that was the high priest at the time, each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And so Ezekiel's taken off in vision and he sees that there are these images that are set up. There's idol worship that's going on. And then he goes into this room and all of these pictures of these detestable animals are on there. And they've got their censers. This is a worship service that's going on. They're worshiping idols and images. And God says this is an abominable thing to him that this is something that is happening right there amongst His people. And then notice what He says in verse 12. He says, Then He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And He said to me, Turn again. And you will see even greater abominations that they are doing. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now the question is, who is Tammuz? Tammuz is the god of vegetation. And you see what happened is every fall the vegetation would start to die. 
And so they were weeping for Tammuz because she's the goddess of vegetation and vegetation is dying. So in a sense, she's dying. They're crying. They're weeping over her because she's dying. But then in the spring, when the vegetation comes back, then supposedly she's resurrected, right? And so they're worshiping the dead. They're bowing down to this goddess who's supposedly dying And God says this is even a greater abomination than just bowing down to idols and and worshiping images. And so we have this idea that they're worshiping the dead, that the dead don't really die, that there's this immortality of the soul. But you know what the Bible says about death, right? Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's what the Bible teaches. And so where did this immortal soul idea come from? It came from spiritualism. Spiritualism teaches that the soul is immortal. But before that, It came from pagan Greek philosophy taught that the soul is immortal. But even long before that, in the Garden of Eden, you had the first lie that was ever spoken to humanity. You will not surely die. This is a doctrine that comes directly from the bowels of hell. This comes directly from the dragon himself and it's being brought through Babylon. Babylon was the center of this pagan practice. And if we see that in literal Babylon, we should also see this sort of thinking in spiritual Babylon as well. But we know the Bible says what happens to you when you die. You go into the grave and you sleep, right? It says the dead go down into silence. The dead know nothing. They do not praise the Lord. Their thoughts perish. There are multitudes of verses that tell us what happens to us when we die. But the truth has been cast to the ground. And spiritual Babylon is bringing in this pagan theology that you live forever. And so it gives way to these seductive teachings that are leading people astray. False teachings that are taking away from the truth. And if you think about it, if you die and you go straight to heaven or hell, that totally undercuts the theology of the second coming of Christ. Right? Because if you go straight to heaven, then there's no need for Him to come back. There's no need for the resurrection. And it just totally undercuts the truths of God's Word. It was God's intent that the church in every age would long for the second coming of Christ. That our hope would be placed in the resurrection where it rightfully belongs. But now, because of these pagan practices that have come into spiritual Babylon, it has lost the urgency of the second coming of Christ. It has lost the passion and the hunger and the desire for the resurrection. And I thank God that the Bible teaches the truth. I thank God that the Bible gives us this sense that Jesus Christ is coming again soon and we've got to get ready. Because if you take that away, then everybody's just going on, what does the Bible say? Just like it was in the days of Noah. Eating, drinking, marrying, just 
going to work, uh, raising their families, just doing things like normal and have no sense of what's coming upon the world. That's why Satan has brought these deceptions in. And our hearts can beat with the eager anticipation of those loved ones that are going to come out of the grave. And we look forward to that big family reunion, right? But that deception takes all of that away. Here's another one. Babylon was also the center of sun worship. So if we see the literal Babylon being the center of sun worship, we should expect that spiritual Babylon is also a center of sun worship, right? Look with me. Let's go back to Ezekiel. We're still in chapter 8, but now look at verse 15. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see even greater abominations than these. And so he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east." Here we see that Babylon was corrupting God's people. They were going to the temple to worship, supposedly to worship God. But then when they get there, they turn their back on the temple. They turn their back on God and they're facing the east and they're worshiping the sun. And that's exactly what we have going on in the church today. You're facing the sun... And they're worshiping God on the Sunday. Sun worship crept into the church. Babylonian religious practices united with Judaism, and then worship of the sun came into the church. I'd like you to notice what it says in the book, The Worship of Nature by James Frazier, volume 1, page 529. He says, in ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. It's saying that Babylon is the center of sun worship, right? That's what it's saying. The sun was worshipped and the sun was part of the worship system. And it's very plain that it happened early on in the Christian church. It happened so early on that by the time the reformers come along, they're so accustomed to it, so used to it, that they don't even realize that they're taking that pagan practice with them into the Reformation and into the Protestant churches. Here's a book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Notice what he says. To conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. That just means brought them together. And to get paganism and Christianity, which is now far sunk in idolatry, in this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. And that's exactly what we have today. 
we have Christianity and paganism shaking hands and Sunday becomes the vehicle to unite the pagans and the Christians. And friends, we can bring that forward and we can put that in the church today and that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to see, I think in the very near future, maybe as early as May 14th of 2020, we're going to see that Sunday worship is going to be the vehicle that the apostate church uses to bring the whole world together. And so we have this corrupt system that is made up of of a human merit for salvation. You have images in the worship. You have the immortality of the soul. You have Sunday worship. You have Christianity and paganism shaking hands. You have them coming and working together rather than following the Word of God. Now I want to share with you a quote from a Baptist preacher a man by the name of Dr. Edward T. Hiscox. He actually was the one who wrote the Baptist manual. He wrote the manual for the Baptist church. And he made this statement in 1893 to hundreds of Baptist ministers. And he's explaining about how Sunday came into the church. Notice what he says. What a pity that it, that is Sunday worship, comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. Isn't that powerful? He's saying this is how it got into the church and this is why we have Sunday worship today. Can you imagine what Ezekiel the prophet would say about that? Well, let's look what Ezekiel says. Chapter 20, verse 12. God says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Here we see this drastic contrast between what God has called for and what the pagan practices are of this spiritual system called Babylon. But God is raising up men and women. He raised them up in the time of the Reformers, and even though they didn't know it, they brought error with them. And so it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years for God to be able to get to the place where He can restore all of the truth once and for all. And so there are many people who are in those churches today, in the mother church, in the harlot daughter churches that truly love God, that truly want to serve God, that truly want to know the truth, but they're a part of a deception that they don't even understand. But in these last days, God is calling them out. He's calling them out of that corrupt system. Ezekiel 22, verse 26 says, Her priests have violated My law and profaned My holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy. Nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. This is where we're at today. The pastors and the leaders of the churches today do not recognize the difference between truth and error. 
between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. And that's the world that we're living in today. But God is calling us out. And God says, and they've hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Can you imagine what Ezekiel would have to say about that today, right? Can you imagine what the Apostle John, the revelator, would have to say about that today? But God is leading us back to His Word. He's leading us back to the truth. And there are honest-hearted men and women like you that He is speaking to. And He's saying, come out. And if we're going to follow the truth and avoid the deception, we have got to get away from that corrupt system that thinks that they can change God's times and laws. And we've already talked about that. I don't think I need to say any more about it, but I do want to point you to something that a Protestant writer by the name of George Eliot said in a book that he wrote called The Abiding Sabbath on page 123, and he's commenting about Daniel 7 and man's attempt to change God's law. Notice what he says. What is proposed to make an erasure in the heaven-born code? Is the eternal tablet of the law to be defaced by a creature's hand? I think that's a very important question. Are we going to allow a creature and not the Creator to change His law? I think that's a good question. He goes on to say, He who proposes such an act should fortify himself by reasons as holy as God and as mighty as His power. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you that that no earthly power, no earthly church, no earthly man has the authority to change God's law and to change God's Word. I say unto you that preachers should get back to preaching the truth. And God is raising up a church today. He's raising up a remnant. He's raising up a group of people that are getting back to the truth. That are preaching the truth. And remember what we said last night. You don't go to a church to find the truth. You go to the Word of God to find the truth. And then you go to a church that's teaching the truth. And that's what God is leading us back to. And He's calling us to the truth. He's calling us back to His Word. He's calling us back to worshiping Him as the Creator. And so we've got to come out of that false doctrine that is being shared through worship of images and through the immortality of the soul and Sunday worship and the ever-burning hell, all of those doctrines that have worked their way into the church. And you have a contrast between the true church and the false church. Between the pure woman and the harlot woman. Between the woman in white and the woman in purple and scarlet. And God is calling us out of that corrupt system. Revelation 18.4 says, And He cried with a mighty loud voice saying, Babylon the great is falling. It's fallen and it's falling. Right? Because as truth is being restored in the blazing light of truth, error is being exposed. And when error is exposed, so is Babylon. And Babylon is going to fall. Babylon is falling. 
He goes on to say, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God's got a lot of people in the corrupt church. There are many godly men and women in the mother Catholic church. There are many godly women in the harlot daughter denominational churches. But God is calling us out. He's calling us to stand for the truth. He's calling for us to keep His commandments, to keep the Sabbath holy, and to worship Him in the manner in which He has asked us to do. And the problem is that that many of them there just don't understand where we're at. They don't understand the situation. But God is calling us out. And He has had a little sanctuary here in the last few weeks. And He's giving us an opportunity to make a stand for Him. To make a decision for Him. I want you to notice, I want to take you back to that commentary of Fawcett and Brown, back to the same place, page 593. It says, In every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's invisible and true church. If they would be safe, they must come out. That's what God is telling us. We've got to come out of that corrupt system. Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins. Now I want to close today by telling you a story about a woman by the name of Doris. Doris was 70 years old and she had been in the church her whole life. She loved the Lord with all of her heart, mind, soul, and body. And she grew up in the Lutheran church and all of her family was in the Lutheran church. But Doris just... She was involved in every activity of the church. Every time there was a Bible study, she was there. Every time there was a social, she was there. Every time she could learn something more, go to Sunday school, she was there. And then one day, one of her brothers came and invited her to a Bible prophecy series much like this one. And Doris loved to study the Word of God, and so, of course, she went with her brother And she began to learn many of the truths that we've learned in here. Many of the deceptions were exposed. And she saw the truth, but she had a struggle that was going on within her heart and in her mind. Because she loved her church. And she loved her family. And at one point, she was very upset when she saw the truth. And she was angry. She said, how could my church have lied to me? And then she worked her way through that, but she still struggled with the question that she finally would go to God in prayer and say, how can I know what is truth and what is error? And as soon as she prayed that, she went to bed one night and she had a dream. And in that dream, she was standing in her living room. She had an open floor plan, so the kitchen was right there. She had this big picture window, and she was standing in her living room looking out the window, and she saw someone pull into her driveway with a van. And a man got out of the van with a box in his hand, and he came up to her door, but he didn't knock on the door. He just opened the door and walked in, came over to her kitchen table, dumped the contents of the box out, and then turned around, took the box with him, and walked out, got back in his van, and took off. And Doris stood there and went, huh, the nerve of some people. Just walked in and didn't even knock. 
right? And as she's standing there being appalled, she all of a sudden is curious, what did he dump out on the table? And she goes up, and it's all of these pieces of a puzzle. And Doris just loved to put puzzles together. And so she started flipping over all the pieces, started taking all of the borders, she put it together, and she starts working on this puzzle. And she put in a piece here and put in a piece there. But days and days and weeks go by, and she's not able to get this puzzle put together because the guy took the box. She doesn't even know the picture of what she's trying to put together But she doesn't give up, but she just keeps working on it and working on it. And finally, one day, she realizes all of the pieces of the puzzle that were there don't belong to the picture she's trying to put together. And so finally, she starts taking those that are quite different and she starts setting them aside and she finally gets down to where those that look like they belong and she's putting this together and finally she's able to get the whole puzzle together and it's a beautiful picture of the face of Jesus and then she woke up and Doris said whoa that was no ordinary dream. Lord, you have got to tell me what that dream means. And the Lord began to impress upon her mind that that was her problem. You see, she'd been going to all of these Bible studies all of her life, but she had been getting pieces of the puzzle that don't belong to the picture of the face of Jesus or the plan of salvation. There was error that was mixed in with truth, and it wasn't until she rejected the error and started pushing it aside that she was finally able to get the true picture from the Word of God. And she realized, wow, this is the truth. And she went to the pastor and she said, I want to be a part of your church. I want the truth. And friends, that's the same problem that you and I have. There's so much error, there's so much pagan practice, so much tradition that's been put above the Bible that has come into the church and we have to distinguish, we have to make a separation between what is truth and what is error and we've got to throw the error out. And when we do that, all of a sudden, We can have peace of mind. All of a sudden we have the truth and we can see it with such clarity and we can wonder, why didn't I ever see this before? And that's where we are at. And that's the decision that we have to make. Are we going to continue in the error or are we going to throw it out and take the truth which paints a beautiful picture of Jesus? And that's the decision that each and every one of us needs to make. And I leave that decision to you. But I ask you the question, what are you looking for? Why are you here? Are you looking for the truth? Are you looking for a way to avoid being a part of the whole world that wanders after the beast? God has provided that truth for you. The question is, are you going to follow it? And I pray that you'll choose wisely. Why don't you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, the truth is so 
clear. The truth just has a certain ring to it. It just has a certain sound. And Lord, we recognize truth when we hear it. You make it so abundantly clear. You've made it so easy for us. Lord, we just have to decide are we going to follow the truth or not. And Lord, I pray You would help us to choose wisely. You know every heart. You know every person here. And I just pray that You would be with us. Even as we leave here tonight, send Your angels to minister to us. The Holy Spirit will strive with us, Lord. And You will help us to choose You and choose life. Lord, You're wanting us to come out of Babylon because You're about to pour out Your wrath on this corrupt system. You have got to put an end to it. And Lord, our prayer is that You will help us to be a part of the true church those that worship You in the way that You have asked us to. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.